0: Welcome back to Tap That Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Walters. And in this episode, we're in the third part of a four-part series, A Year in Waiting, a memoir by Nicholas D. Butler. Nick, a friend of mine, really great dude, great beer maker, also known as a brewer, I guess, right? (laughs) Uh, Nick was on episode 87, along with his dad, when they were making beer with, they're working in conjunction with Helio Basin. And basically making beer for uh, Binkley's. It was called Limelight Brewing. And just a really intriguing, great story. Great guest. Kevin Binkley even came on as a guest for that one. So go back and listen. And um, it was a good one. It was exciting. It was fun. So I hadn't seen Nick for a while. And we just crossed paths, I think, actually at Wandering Tortoise. And he said, hey, I wrote a book. You want to check it out? And I did. And it was fantastic. It's basically his, his experience through... Uh, getting into fine dining, while also commuting to Flagstaff from Phoenix. And man, it's it's a great story. It's a short read, uh, keeps you intrigued, it keeps you engaged. And Nick is great. Nick is a great, he, he presents this very well. And it's really cool. I always love uh, audiobooks that are are read by the author. And you can feel the emotion in this. So in the previous part of this series, we got to know all the players that are that are needed to, you know, for this fine dining experience. And now we 're going to focus on the execution of the game plan, uh, which as you'll you 'll see takes a toll on you you know is, is you know it takes gets into here 's what 's required to go through this he even goes through a step by step process of time minute by minute of of what is required and it's everything is tight and it 's crazy, and it takes a toll on you and that is what Nick uh, captures in this and and what he really is just trying to He's trying to learn this highly skilled job, also, actually, multiple uh, skilled jobs. Also, trying to maintain a marriage, also, trying to maintain a career as a, a college professor while commuting, right? To Flagstaff, like I said, that's so. Just it, it's great. It, it, it draws you in, and like I said, this is the third part of the series. If you haven't listened to the other two, go listen to those. Now, this book is available. Uh, paper copy, uh, paperback copies are available in downtown Phoenix at Lawn Gnome Publishing and Bookstore. It's a Fifth and about Go to their website too, LawnGnomePublishing.com, to find that book and get yourself one. Uh, Amazon subscribers can also get a digital copy for their e-readers. So. Let's get into this one. This is a year in waiting, a memoir by Nicholas D. Butler. This is part three of a four part series coming up soon too. We have some episodes with the wayward tap house, the sleepy whale, and then the final concluding part of this one. So, all right, enjoy. Chapter
1: six allegiance requires dedication as anyone in the service industry can attest there's a lot more to accomplish during a shift than you probably realize especially when it comes to side work during an average service we walk between 10 to 12 miles according to the expediters Fitbit lift 50-pound tables dozens of times a day and are seated for approximately 15 minutes during an average 12-hour service doing these tasks on a daily basis was as grueling as some of the most challenging times in the military and brought me to the brink of exhaustion on a weekly basis. Doing these tasks with exacting precision, being verbally chastised if anything was centimeters off, and rapidly interchanging necessary tasks within mere moments, particularly during service, required the absolute capacity of my mental focus. Doing these tasks in a performatively good mood with positive energy without exception during service, needled my emotional stability beyond its boundaries on several occasions. So it's important to keep in mind that the author has been an academic for the past decade, not a CrossFit trainer or religious guru. Every restaurant is different, but the following checklist details our daily routine for the front of the house designed by our GM and scheduled with the expectation that any task can and should be Accomplished in less than five minutes, like a train arriving on time at every station. Initialing the checklist meant you took responsibility for executing the item, and if something went wrong during service, the checklist was summoned by our chef to identify the accountable party. Our checklist. 1245. Arrive in white shirt, slacks, and sneakers ready to hustle. Greet everyone in the kitchen. 1250. Sweep the south side of the dining room. Mop the south side of the dining room. 1255. Move all the tables and chairs to the south side. 1. Sweep the north side of the dining room. 105. Mop the north side of the dining room. 110. Arrange the tables according to the daily diagram. 115. Swap out any tables that aren't the same as a party's size. 120. Clean all the tabletops. 125. Level and balance the tables. 130. Set all chairs symmetrically around the tables. 135. Fold, roll, and set the dining room napkins one inch from the table's edge. 140. Polish and set the silver, centered, and one inch from the right side of the napkins. 145. Polish and set bread and butter plates, centered, and one inch from the left side of the napkins. 150. Set the dining room glassware aligned one inch above the silver. 155, polish, fuel, and set dining room candles, centered six inches from the table's opposite edge. Two, sweep the bar area. 205, mop the bar area. 210, arrange the bar tables according to the daily diagram. 215, clean the bar top and set the bar mats. 220, fill the three compartment sinks in the bar Fill the espresso machine. Stock the sweeteners. Inventory and stock beverages. 225. Set bar napkins. Align with the edge of the bar. Set bar glassware. Align diagonally one inch from the right of the napkins. 230. Polish, fuel, and set bar candles. Centered one inch from the edge of the bar at specified points. 235. Set all flowers in the dining room and bar. Opinions on their placement will shift throughout the day. 240, blow off and hose down the patio. 245, unlock the patio furniture. Swap out any tables that aren't the same as a party size. 245, arrange the patio furniture according to the daily diagram. 250, stage the silver, glassware, and B&Bs for the patio. 255, level and balance the patio furniture. 3. Fuel and stage the Bunsen burners used for the infusion course. 305. Sweep the hallway and private dining room. 310. Mop the hallway and private dining room. 315. Clean the private dining room table and set the chair symmetrically. 320. Remove the traps from the bathroom. Move bathroom furniture into the hallway. 325. Bleach and scrub the toilets and sinks. 330. Dust and polish all surfaces. 335. Restock bathroom items and fold toilet paper into a triangle. 340. Sweep and mop the bathrooms. 345. Help fold as much linen as possible while the bathroom dries. Cocktail folds take 5 seconds per napkin. Bar folds take 15 seconds per napkin. Dining room folds take 25 seconds per napkin. Any imperfections in the linen are sent back to the cleaners. On days when not assigned to clean the bathroom, you fold more linen... Or help the kitchen 350 move furniture back into the bathroom 355 stage all silverware napkins plates serving utensils and hot pads at the family table walk all family meal items from the kitchen to the table round everyone up to eat four sit down for family meal 415 clean up all items from family meal 420 get dressed for service 425 Accomplish any extra assignments, like posting the social media. 4.30. Everyone gathers for the daily meeting. 4.35. Notes from last night are reviewed. 4.40. Seating diagrams are reviewed. 4.45. Guest notes and alerts. Allergies and preferences are all reviewed. 4.50. Details of the menu. Ingredients, sources, and techniques are reviewed. 4.55. 4.55. Descriptions of courses are scripted, memorized, and rehearsed for approximately 20 courses. 5. Print course checklist for the patio, tours, bar, and dining room. 505. Highlight all alerts and add-ons. Caviar, Wagyu, birthdays, anniversaries, etc. 510. Stock and stage bottles for beverage pairings. 515. Set and stage all glassware for beverage pairings. 520. Cut flowers and herbs from the garden for centerpieces. 525, set centerpieces in the dining room, centered one inch from dining room candles. Set envelopes for special occasions in the dining room. 530, help the kitchen prep and plate. 545, set the lights, music, and light candles for guest arrival. 550, fetch ice for the bar. Prepare mise en place for the night's opening cocktail. 555. Double-check everything, including our appearance. Ensure there's a pen, menu, and beverage pairing list in your breast pockets. Ensure there's a wine key, table stabilizers, chapstick, and lighter in your pants' pockets. Maybe get a drink of water. Six, guests begin to arrive, detailed in Chapter 7. Approximately 9.30, guests begin to depart. Stand by until the last guest leaves, and you see their taillights depart. X. The time it takes for the last guest to leave widely varies. Blow out, gather, and store all candles. Gather and store all flowers in the walk-in fridge. X05. Clean the dining room and bar tables. X10. Move all dining room tables and chairs to the north side. X15. Flip all bar stools up and clean the bar mats. X20. Melt down the ice in the bar and clean the three compartment sinks. X25. Start polishing glassware until each glass looks like it's new. Y. Polishing can take from an hour to several hours depending on the number of beverage pairings, people on staff, special events, and remaining energy level. Finish polishing glassware and stage the glass racks outside. Y. 05. Move all patio furniture to the west side. Y. 15. Lock the furniture and gather all staged items. Y20, clean the private dining room table and flip all chairs up. Y25, sweep all rooms. Y30, pour argon gas in bottles to save the remaining wine. Y35, double check everything is locked. Y40, maybe use the bathroom. Y45, turn off the lights. Y50, drive home. Y55, have something small to eat. Z. Try to stop thinking about how service went and get some sleep. While most restaurants might not have such a detailed checklist to complete on a breakneck schedule, I hope this gives anyone who hasn't worked in the service industry an idea of what those who work in restaurants for their career, especially in fine dining establishments, have been doing their entire adult lives. Chapter 7. Dedication Requires Performance Service at a fine dining establishment requires just as much preparation as mounting a theatrical production. Substitute polishing every detail of a dining room with the efforts of a stage crew, rehearsal of each aspect of a course's preparation with a cast of actors running their lines, and you start to see parallels of what it takes to perform an evening's culinary experience. Daily meetings, much like a script read-through, serve as an opportunity to rehearse and adjust preceding performance. Our chef, much like a live productions director, gives notes to the staff and holds everyone accountable for the roles they play. Host, GM, spouse, busser, and expediter, in executing his vision of the ideal culinary experience. Appearance, expression, and delivery, much like costuming, makeup, and elocution, are all part of communicating our dedication to diners before guests ever take a bite. The following script was adapted from my personal notes after dinner service on Saturday, 18 May, 2019, one of the most flawless services of my tenure. Of note, it was the 15th anniversary of the restaurant and marked my sixth month in service. Of the seven tables served on this particular evening, I performed the majority of the script for each party with a degree of consistency commensurate with the theatrical productions that I've performed in as an actor Similarly, our chef, spouse, and GM all perform portions of the script. The main differences that I would like to point out between a fine dining experience and a theatrical production are that we perform the script for every table, and the details of the script at this particular restaurant changed every week, necessitating constant revision. Our script Two guests approach the entrance of a restaurant and are greeted by our host. Good evening! Thank you for joining us tonight. May I ask the name of your party? The host marks the reservations list and hands two cocktails to the guests. Happy birthday! Here to help you start your celebration, we have a passion fruit cocktail crafted by our culinary team, featuring Hiro Sake from Hiroshima, as well as a splash of orange juice and garnished with passion fruit seeds. Cheers. I understand that one of you has a nut allergy and does not consume seafood. Is that correct? Thank you for clarifying. Our chef has made the appropriate substitutions and will ensure that none of those items are plated for you. Now, I understand that it's your first time dining with us, is that correct? Excellent! We're honored you've chosen to celebrate your birthday with us. We like to treat dining at a restaurant like you're coming to our home for a dinner party. So, much like you would at a friend's home, we like to greet our guests with a cocktail and offer a tour of the restaurant. Would you like to join me on a tour? The guests follow the host into a garden in front of the restaurant. I would love to show you our garden first. As you may not know, our chef decided to consolidate his four restaurants three years ago so he could truly showcase his ability in the kitchen instead of being stuck in metro traffic. Every year we try to evolve our concept to be the best it can possibly be, and we're proud you've joined us for what we currently consider to be the finest culinary experience we have crafted in our 15 years a 20-course tasting menu designed to be not only the best of what's in season, but what's in season this week. What most diners don't realize is that we source a significant portion of our ingredients from this small garden, as well as our chef's urban farm across the street that his wife tends. For example, you're dining with us at an especially opportune moment when we have strawberries in our raised beds. So for anyone who's interested, I'm happy to pick you a strawberry, or you can feel free to enjoy one that catches your eye the host finds two strawberries for the guests. Everything is organic, so you're welcome to dispose of the stem back into the garden. You'll notice that we have a variety of edible flowers, such as bachelor's button, dianthus, and nasturtium growing at the moment that will be used as garnish for several courses this evening, as well as flowering thyme, lavender, chives, and mint, which is featured in your first official bite of the evening. The host lifts a bell jar from a stand in the garden and passes a tray to the guests, Waiting for us in the garden is a savory cheesecake bite made from sugar snap peas, piment to croutons, lemon olive oil, and mint from our raised beds. Please feel free to take a spoon and enjoy it in one bite. I'm happy to collect your spoons on this tray. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Now, if you wouldn't mind following me, I would be delighted to show you our bar area inside, where you'll be enjoying several more courses later in the evening. The guests follow the hosts into the bar area inside the restaurant. As you'll notice, we have an exquisitely curated selection of spirits since our chef likes to highlight particularly unique products from across the globe, as well as some of our favorite beverages in the state. As it happens, my father and I are the house brewers and the restaurant features two of our beers at the moment. We're proud to be featured alongside several offerings from two nationally recognized breweries we've become friends with, as well as a world champion meadery and sake maker from a few hours north. During our time in the bar a little later, we'll be focusing on modern takes on traditional bar fare. So to give you a sneak preview, our chef has prepared your next course to be enjoyed on the tour. The host picks up two small dishes and passes them to the guest. This is a bite of marinated Spanish octopus that's been glazed in kimchi, topped with fried capers, and intended to be consumed like a kebab with a marscapone-stuffed Castelvetrano olive beneath Because one of you does not enjoy seafood, we've substituted a watermelon radish for the octopus. The host collects the dishes and sets them behind the bar. Oh, thank you for saying so. Now, if you would like to follow me around the corner, I'd be happy to show you a peek at tonight's menu in the dining room where you'll be seated for the second half of the meal. The guests follow the host into the dining room of the restaurant. As you can see, our chef likes to keep things a bit vague, so you're still surprised throughout the evening but rest assured that we'll provide everyone with a printed menu at the end of the evening with all of the details to savor. The guests read the menu written on a chalkboard. Ah, it looks like our chef has your next course ready for you in the kitchen. If you'll just follow me, I'd love to introduce you. The guests follow the host into the open kitchen of the restaurant. Good evening, chef. Our guests are celebrating a birthday with us for the first time. The chef shakes the guest's hands and motions to two dishes on the counter. Thank you so much for joining us. As you might have noticed, we don't like to go too far without a bite. And I know it's been maybe a minute and a half since your last course, but we're excited to have you celebrating with us. For your next course, we've cured chum salmon roe in-house to create a bite of caviar for you resting on the Chinese spoon. It's taken nearly a decade for me to figure out how to cure the roe in the way they serve it in Japan. So if you don't like it, please don't tell me. I recommend consuming it in one bite for the burst of flavor and then taking a sip of arugula vichyssoise from the teacup, which is essentially a leek and potato soup that we've made our own by adding local arugula for spice. The host collects the dishes and takes them through a door to the dishwashing station. I hope you're not just saying that, but thank you. It means a lot that you've chosen to celebrate with us this evening. If there's anything we can possibly do to improve your experience, please don't hesitate to ask or bring it to the attention of our staff. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, chef. Now, if you all would like to follow me back to the terrace, we'll have your next course out to you momentarily, along with your first beverage pairing of the evening. The guests follow the host to their table on the outdoor terrace of the restaurant as the host collects two glasses from the host station and sets them on the guest table as the spouse approaches. To help you celebrate this evening, our first beverage pairing is a 100% Blanc de Blanc non-vintage champagne from Larmandier Bernier in France. They call their champagne Longitude because of all the grapes that are harvested from Chardonnay vineyards along the same longitude in the region. Cheers. The spouse leaves and the busser places two hot hand towels on the table and pours water moments before the host returns with two new dishes. For our final course on the terrace, we have some Pakistani mulberries that come to us locally from holiday farms, along with a brandy foie gras mousse that we suggest dipping the mulberries in before biting and pulling the stem out to enjoy. The host leaves for a few minutes before the busser collects the dishes and the host returns with a tray. I'm glad you enjoyed them. Are you at a moment where you'd like to join us in the bar area for your next few courses? Wonderful. I'll be happy to carry your glasses for you if you'll just follow me. The guests follow the host to the bar area inside the restaurant. Here to greet you at the bar, we have some chicharrones, or pork rinds, that our chef has shaved black paragord truffles over the top of, as well as crumbles of house-made truffle powder the host leaves as the spouse returns. Here we have a 2017 Pinot Gris from the Sonoma County winery Jolie Ladie. You may notice that the label is uniquely decorative and that's because the winery collaborates with a local creative collective in their community who works with disabled children as a form of therapy. We love their wine as much as their cause and hope you enjoy it with your next course. After a few moments, the busser collects the dishes and the host returns with two new dishes. This course features spot prawns that come to us from Southern California that we've turned into a ceviche with tomatillos, pink and white grapefruit, diced avocado, sliced Fresno chili, and a taro root chip on top for some crunch. Because one of you does not enjoy seafood, we've substituted daikon with the same preparation. The host leaves momentarily and returns with two beer glasses he sets down and begins to pour into. As I mentioned before, we have our own beer on tap that my father and I actually brew test batches of on premises. We were both in the Air Force, and when we finished our service, my father used his GI Bill to go to brewing school, and I used mine to go to graduate school for film studies. So when I'm not in the restaurant, I'm a part-time professor. We like to name all of our beers after movies, and this is a cream ale we like to call pulp affliction. We usually infuse our beer with fresh citrus zest through a filtration housing each night, But tonight, we've infused it with red bell peppers to complement your next course. After a few moments, the busser collects the dishes and the host returns with two new dishes. For your next course, to honor being in the Southwest, we've created what might be the world's smallest street taco. Inside the flour tortilla, you'll find a canal of ratatouille we've created from locally sourced peppers, eggplant, and tomatoes paired with a spicy rouille sauce and topped with crumbles of Valencé goat cheese. After a few moments, The busser collects the dishes, and the host returns with two new dishes. Up next, we have our take on a fritter made with asparagus and a Japanese condiment called yuzu kosho that provides a tangy flavor to the batter that we've glazed with yuzu juice and topped with crispy oli salami from Italy. The host leaves as the GM approaches. How is everything this evening? I'm delighted you're enjoying yourselves. For your next beverage pairing, we have a 2017 Old Vine Zinfandel from Bedrock Winery on the central coast of California. It's very fruit forward and full bodied to pair with the elk this evening. After a few moments, the busser collects the dishes and the host returns with two new dishes. For your final course at the bar, we have Elk Shoulder that comes to us from New Zealand, which we've braised in red wine, melted comte cheese over the top of, along with caramelized onions and horseradish between house-made Parker House rolls to create our take on a slider. The host leaves for a few minutes before the busser collects the dishes and the host returns with a tray. Are you at a juncture where you'd like to progress into the dining room? Fantastic. Please just follow me and I'll be happy to carry the beverages you're still enjoying. The host collects the glasses, and the guests follow the host to the dining room of the restaurant. Here to greet you in the dining room, we have a trio of tartars with house-made herb lavash and creme fraiche. Our chef suggests beginning with the sashimi-grade ocean trout that comes to us from Scotland, advancing to the golden beets that come to us locally from McClendon Farms, and finishing with the buffalo loin, which comes to us from New York. The creme fraiche is intended to be enjoyed between bites. As a substitute for the ocean trout, we've also prepared a Granny Smith apple tartare. The host leaves, and the GM approaches with two additional dishes. I see that one of you has ordered our special caviar to celebrate the occasion. Our chef's selection of caviar comes to us from a fisherman in Uruguay, who did a one-time harvest from the Caspian Sea in order to create a sustainable farm for our cetra, or medium-sized beluga. These pearls of caviar represent seven-tenths of a percentage of this year's harvest— that are considered gold and standard. Our chef suggests enjoying the caviar on a non-reactive pearl spoon first by pressing the caviar to the roof of your mouth before progressing to bites with house-made toast points, sour cream, and a shot of Russian vodka, Nostrovia. The host leaves as the busser sets two more glasses on the table and the spouse returns. For your next beverage pairing, we have a 2017 Chateau de Trequivendale Rosé that comes to us from France. Is crafted with a blend of Grenache, Sinsault, Claret, and Tavel grapes to achieve a near-perfect flavor. The spouse leaves, and moments later, the busser briefly returns to collect the dishes as the host approaches with two new dishes. For your next course, we have a chilled tomato soup made from local heirloom tomatoes that have been refined into a clear liquid, along with the clusters of Alaskan Red King Crab, Wasabi, Pickled Red Onion, Diced Cucumber, and Dots of Basil Oil. After a few moments, the busser collects the dishes, and the host returns with two new dishes. I'm happy you enjoyed it. Here to cleanse your palate, we have an intermezzo of rhubarb juice that we've carbonated to create a soda. The host leaves as the busser sets two more glasses on the table, and the spouse returns. As we transition into your final savory courses, we have a 2017 Domain Charles Auden bourgeon, rouge, that comes to us from Burgundy. It's one of our chef's favorite wines, and we hope you enjoy it just as much. The spouse leaves, and moments later, the busser briefly returns to collect the dishes as the host approaches with two new dishes. For your next course, we're showcasing morels that come to us from the Pacific Northwest atop a black garlic brioche that we've just toasted for you, smothered in a spring onion cream sauce and garnished with chive blossoms from our garden. After a few moments... Busser collects the dishes, and the host returns with a tray brimming with new dishes. For your final savory course, we have Berkshire pork that comes to us from Washington State. It's been grazing on hazelnuts its entire life and has an incredible flavor that our chef has prepared in three different ways for you to experience. The host sets two dishes down. First, we suggest sampling the tenderloin that has been sous vide with butter, garlic, and rosemary before charring moments ago to pair with a slice of bacon, braised cabbage, and apple cider vinegar. The host sets two more dishes down. Next, we suggest advancing to the belly that has been braised with dashi and paired with ponzu, daikon, baby carrots, and cilantro. The host sets two more dishes down. Finally, we suggest finishing with the cheek that has been smoked all afternoon on oak chips and paired with great white northern beans that have been cooked with butterfly pea flowers to take on an earthy flavor and violet hue. The host leaves momentarily, and the GM approaches with an additional dish. To help celebrate your birthday, our chef has prepared a complimentary sample of Wagyu beef that comes to us from Hokkaido. This is the cap of the tenderloin, and based on the marbling is grade A512, or the highest possible rating of Japanese beef. What makes this protein so sought after is because it comes from a genetic line passed on in male cattle whose fat melts at body temperature, so it literally melts in your mouth. After a few moments, the busser collects the dishes and the host returns with a siphon pot and a small Bunsen burner that's lit tableside. I imagine you're reaching a point where you're quite full, so I'm happy to brew you an herbal infusion to help settle your stomach. The host takes the herbs and flowers from the centerpiece from the table and places them into the top of the siphon pot. Once the lower chamber reaches a boiling point, the water will pressurize into the top chamber to infuse your centerpiece of flowering thyme, rosemary, and lavender from our gardens along with Lisbon Lemon, Hawaiian Turmeric, Ginger, Coriander, Fennel, Anise, and Dried Hibiscus to create an infusion that will give you a second wind as we transition into your dessert courses. The host leaves as the GM sets two more glasses on the table before the spouse approaches. Here to pair with your dessert courses, we have a non-vintage Moscato di from Cassanetta Vietti, in Italy. The sweet notes and frisant offer a preview of additional delights to come. The spouse leaves, and the busser turns the Bunsen burner off, as the host returns with two new dishes. For your first dessert course this evening, we have a combination of strawberries, mango, and baby pickled peaches. The larger strawberry comes to us from Blue Sky Farms, and the smaller alpine strawberries that come to us from Holiday Farms. And the green sphere is actually a baby Japanese pickled peach that hasn't had an opportunity to grow a pit yet, so you can consume the entire peach. Using the same ingredients, our culinary team pureed each fruit and dripped the juice into liquid nitrogen to create frozen pearls for you to enjoy with zero crystallization, so they melt in your mouth. The host pours the infusion from the siphon pot. Also, Please keep in mind that your digestive was boiling moments ago, so it's only intended to be sipped once you're ready. The host leaves and returns moments later with the busser holding a small metal cauldron. The host reaches in the cauldron and places a deflated balloon on the table that quickly begins to reinflate. Using the same liquid nitrogen that we used to create the frozen pearls, we shrank a balloon for you, and if you'll notice as it reinflates, it shares our wishes of a happy birthday for you. After a few moments, the busser collects the dishes, and the host returns with two new dishes, along with a container of bubbling liquid nitrogen. For our final course this evening, we're finishing quite sweet. This is a white chocolate and vanilla semifredo we've created by essentially freezing a mousse and topping it with ancho chili caramel sauce, as well as spiced pecans for one of you. The centerpiece isn't meant for consumption, but we were excited when we discovered that we could pour negative 321 degree liquid nitrogen into vanilla spice water to create a fog that takes on the flavor of the water to echo the notes in your dessert, as well as cool the table. The host pours the liquid nitrogen into the centerpiece, and a fog envelops the table. Thank you so much for choosing to dine with us. After a few moments, the busser collects the remaining dishes, and the GM approaches with two cordial glasses. As a nightcap, we would be delighted to pour you a sample of our house-made pineapple cello. Starting with grain alcohol, we infuse the spirit with pineapple for over a month in the same way that it's traditionally done with lemon cello. We hope it serves as a fitting exclamation point on your celebration. The host returns with a gift bag and the evening's bill. As promised, we've included a copy of tonight's menu, along with some small parting gifts from us, including some beverage coasters, as well as baby tomatoes from our garden. Please remember that gratuity is already included in the check. The guests place payment in a leather sleeve. May I? The host leaves to process payment and quickly returns with their receipt. We hope you have a delightful evening and that we see you again in the not-too-distant future. The guests sign their bill and exit with their gift bag. The GM opens the door with a glowing smile. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your evening. Chapter 8. Ability requires commitment. During the grueling six months it took to craft and polish our script of an ideal evening at the restaurant, I was also teaching full-time at a university two hours away, which entailed commuting to a hotel on Sunday evenings in order to deliver lectures to students Monday through Wednesday before returning to my second full-time job delivering plates to diners. Committed to a one-year contract with my university long before our chef offered me the opportunity in the restaurant, and honoring the agreement taxed me at a rate far beyond what I was actually earning. To be fully transparent, I made $45,000 a year for teaching, before taxes, transportation costs, food expenses, supplies, and lodging. In turn, the venture I hoped would develop into a promotion to a long-term role actually ended up costing me more, in every sense of the word, than I was ever compensated. My marriage suffered because I was never at home and when I was all I wanted to do was rest my husband expected me to accompany him to church on Sundays my only day off followed by socializing at brunch with his friends but food has always been my closest idea of religion and working at the restaurant was more than enough spiritual reverence for my soul moreover Listening to my husband and his friends asking obnoxious questions and placing persnickety orders embarrassed me to no end as I silently apologized through my expressions to our waiters. I felt sorry for them, but even more for myself. The last thing I wanted to do was talk about my week with someone who didn't understand what I was putting myself through to ensure my husband maintained a level of comfort I was slowly realizing might never happen for me. He wanted attention, but I needed security. Back in Flagstaff, as the semester concluded, the director of the college summoned me into a meeting to congratulate me on finishing the year as the top-rated professor in the department based on student evaluation metrics. But there, unfortunately, wouldn't be an award or even the possibility of promotion beyond my current position. They offered me a contract for another year and told me that positions like the one they occupied would no longer be filled after their long-overdue departure. The university, like the majority of institutions in our country, was shifting toward a model that preferred to compensate adjunct faculty and lecturers on an annual contract like myself at a rate far less than a third of what they were making supervising our performance in the classroom. In fact, I asked the director at least half a dozen times over the course of the academic year to evaluate the introductory class I was teaching in person to a maximum capacity of 85 students who were actually showing up every Monday and Wednesday morning at 8 a.m., but the director didn't want to come in that early, nor did anyone see fit to evaluate any of the nine courses I taught the entire year. I was driving from two hours away and living in a hotel room to teach that class and many others, all while working in an insanely demanding restaurant. One can imagine why I didn't exactly see eye-to-eye with my supervisor from their vantage point high atop the ivory tower, where instead of actually teaching students, they were making $150,000 per year, counting the days until their sizable pension fund supported their retirement. The writing was clearly written on the wall that my time teaching would be over for the foreseeable future. I honored my commitment to the university and decided it was time to return my focus closer to home. By the time I reached six months in the restaurant, short of becoming an authority on wine, I achieved the goals I set out to perform in the first year. Our chef and the GM knew I turned down the offer to continue at my university. So, when the restaurant closed for two weeks during the summer, I took it as an opportunity to propose to them what it would take to keep me employed by the restaurant long term. In short, a 20% raise and a portion of the tips we generated. In response, they took the break to consider my offer. And when we returned, they invited me to the wine room To have a conversation. According to our chef, there were three types of conversations one, what just happened? Two, what needs to happen now? And three, what will never happen? At the time, I had no idea what type of conversation we were about to have, but our chef's shifting body language indicated a rare manifestation of discomfort. Our chef started. You know we're like brothers, so this is a meeting I've been thinking a lot about. I don't normally have to think about things for a long time, but it's seriously been something I've been struggling with the entire break. We all know how important you are here, but I just don't see you as happy as the rest of us are. We love it here. There's nothing else in the world we would rather do than run this restaurant. There's nothing else we can do or we'll go crazy. We're in this for life. But, as the GM summarily finished our chef's sentence, you're interested in dating, and we're looking for marriage. Our chef nodded solemnly in agreement, and the conversation, I later realized was of the third type, was essentially over. Whether it was a question of the expense of keeping me on with the raise I needed to completely distance myself from teaching was beyond the budget, or truly recognizing that working in the restaurant wasn't something I was committed to for the rest of my life, I understood the reasoning. In turn, we agreed to start looking for a suitable replacement for my responsibilities, and they would try their best to help me find a role in hospitality that could earnestly fulfill the calling I had yet to find. I would finish my commitment to work until New Year's Eve, and then it was time to move forward, hopefully in a more satisfying direction. Chapter 9, Commitment Requires Trust. Once the academic year was over and the decision was made to find someone to replace me, the anxiety of learning to be a cut-rate sommelier, in addition to my other responsibilities, washed away and enabled me to fully focus on refining my abilities on the floor during service. I was no longer training. I was committed to executing our chef's vision, achieving the impossibility of a perfect night. We all were. Dining with us during this period was like being in the presence of an orchestra conducted to maximize every note of a timeless composition. Our chefs' focus on precision required exacting adjustments to the menu every day, down to a fraction of an ounce or decimal of a degree like a conductor raising their baton an extra centimeter. Our chef de cuisine's ability to prep and plate dozens of intricate courses for dozens of discerning guests demanded the technical mastery of someone playing an entire percussion section by themselves. Our GM's attention to ensuring every crumb was cleared and each purse was met with a tuffet was as delicate as a violin soloist. Our expediter led the woodwinds, our busser provided the brass, and I sang my heart out. Our show was sold out every night and tickets were impossible to get. However, achieving our level of performance on a nightly basis required more than commitment. Pushing the boundaries of perfection drove us to obsessive extremes. What most people would view as textbook signs of mental illness, such as obsessively counting everything, compulsively aligning dishes symmetrically, and uncontrollable outbursts of hostility were hallmarks of everyone's conduct when we weren't on the stage. Whether our shared behaviors as a group were conditioned or a cocktail of our combined genetics put us at odds, the resulting environment was as toxic as a rock band about to break up by most professional standards. Being trained to spot the slightest trace of dust on a table, smear on a window, or hair on the floor like Shaolin monks with superhuman vision from their kung fu training in a 70s film meant the restaurant was described by the health department as the cleanest restaurant in the Southwest. Yet, it also meant that it was difficult for anyone in the restaurant not to compulsively clean our own homes like we were on prescription drugs, resist the urge to clean public restrooms whenever we went out to dinner, or spend family gatherings distracted by how much better items could be polished and arranged. Being chastised for failure to use the last inch of a carrot, wasting an ounce of cream, or mistaking taro root for daikon meant produce in our restaurant was respected with the reverence of indigenous hunters. Yet, it also meant that it was difficult to turn those expectations off at home and in public. After all, we could all do more to clean our surroundings, take care of ourselves, and eat healthier. All the things we do at the restaurant but fail to do at home As a result of my training, it's nearly impossible for me not to sample what I'm working on in the kitchen, make improvements to seasoning that I can still hear our chef dictating, and enlist the help of squeeze bottles, a mandolin, and microplane to help play tonight's dinner. It's extremely difficult to separate the value of knowledge for the discipline it took to learn. Malcolm Gladwell has infamously noted that it generally takes 10,000 hours to master a skill. So... Beside early-onset arthritis, what do you get when you polish over 10,000 wine glasses? You gain the ability to spot the tiniest of chips around the brim of a glass, immediately identify whether hard water has left any marks, and smell from several feet away whether it's been thoroughly cleaned. It's like having the lamest of superpowers that might as well be a curse. Turning restaurant mode off is difficult. There's simply no comparison to other lines of work I've encountered particularly in the academic community. For those like our chef, some have the ability to shift their professional demeanor as soon as they cross the threshold into the kitchen and forget any potentially personal slights they may have dish out during service by the next day, but I could never delineate between the two. By the time I had made it to the halfway point at the restaurant, my counselor had already referred me to a psychiatrist to help calm the overwhelming mental racing and anxiety I was experiencing. I exhibited signs of PTSD. Although my body pleaded for rest from the notoriously long shifts, I couldn't stop thinking about mistakes I'd noticed, insulting remarks guests made, or potential ideas for improving our service. It wasn't uncommon, when I did get a few hours rest, for me to sleepwalk to areas of my house, and my husband would find me muttering about how a course was dying at the pass, and desserts needed to walk right now. There were countless nights when I'd return home and eat cold leftovers over a trash can because I didn't have the energy to use the microwave or dirty a plate. There were many nights I drank far more than I should have in order to forget the day and pass out rather than continuing to ruminate. And there were even more evenings when I returned home to my husband, confrontationally awaiting my return like I'd been cheating with the restaurant. The emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion felt like being in the military all over again. Folding napkins in precise fashion at work turned into folding underwear at home for a room inspection. Washing surfaces within an inch of their lives at the restaurant turned into cleaning tile in my bathroom with a toothbrush. Carrying martinis across a crowded dining room without spilling turned into ensuring my dog's water bowl didn't spill as I walked across my living room. Knowing the six minutes it took for a sink to fill and figuring out that I could make three trips to the ice maker to fill the trough before returning to the sink to stop the water turned into timing my ability to fetch the newspaper outside, go to the bathroom, and take out the trash and the amount of time it took a pot of coffee to brew. As someone diagnosed with manic, obsessive, and borderline traits that I now take medication to help steady, working in a restaurant was possibly the worst professional choice for my mental health. Pushing the boundaries of excellence in any field comes at the sacrifice of comfort, but I don't know that it requires the oft-portrayed atmosphere in popular media of hostility in celebrity kitchens. Perfection has a cost, and everyone involved in its pursuit pays. There are millions of people working in restaurants around the world, and I think they'd all agree that there are better ways of handling the pressure from supervisors, as well as guests, than resorting to anger or substance abuse it's vital to realize that positions in restaurants rarely come with benefits. I was incredibly fortunate to use my teaching benefits before I left, but retaining them at personal cost afterward wasn't viable for my wage. Paying out of pocket for medical treatment of whatever variety is something that few people in the industry can afford. As I witnessed with members of our staff refusing to be seen for anything from severe burns to persistent colds that simply needed antibiotics, We all need more help than we're willing to take. During this period, a fellow chef and friend from another restaurant passed away due to alcohol poisoning from his addiction, and it's a tragic loss I'll never forget. The toll the service industry takes on those, like my friend, who commit to stay in it for life, is unmistakable. When our GM eventually found my replacement, I immediately saw the trademark signs of submissive conditioning in the philosophy they recommended to me, that I needed to separate the personal from the professional and not take things so seriously, and the way their hands shook from rationalized alcoholism. They were calloused for the journey of a lifetime, and I was far too sensitive to endure for the same length of time. Our chef was always careful not to have anything to drink during the day or on a school night, and I have no doubt that those self-imposed rules had grown from the persistent reminders of how many brilliant and hard-working members of the culinary community he had been near whose passing was never given the public acknowledgement provided to celebrities i knew that i wasn't the only one suffering in silence we all were in some way but at least we could trust everyone in our family to look out for one another at least that's what i believed at the time many go through long periods if not entire careers as anonymous ghosts in the service industry. So while my struggles with coping in the restaurant and wrestling with the strain it placed on my marriage pale in comparison to many, the experience taught me an invaluable lesson in empathy. We could all use a little more help.